Well, good morning, Austin Stone. Big morning today, right? It's the trifecta of spring forward, spring break, and south by. And so here we are. Uh, we are ready to run this morning, but I can't think of a better place to be than with the people of God opening up the word of God together this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, it was right after the tree Megiddon that happened that I made a big life decision. It's a life decision that every guy has to make at some point in his life, and I decided to buy a chainsaw. And I, uh, I was going to put that thing to good use, and so I get it, and I go to Home Depot, me and like every other guy in Austin in line, and I'm opening the box at home, and on the top of the chainsaw instructions, there's a big yellow warning label. And here's what it says. I thought this was intriguing. Do not let your knowledge of this tool lead you to disregard the safety warnings. All right. Like, get rid of that. Uh, I can do this. I've seen lumberjacks on TV. I figured I can probably make this thing work. But why in the world would the good people at Ryobi think it's important to put a safety warning saying, don't let your knowledge of this tool cause you to disregard the safety warnings because they know that people will disregard the safety warnings and it will happen with dire consequences. They recognize that you know, a hundred razor sharp metal teeth spinning at whatever it is, like 3000 RPM could go really badly. And so they offer that warning and it's a legitimate warning, pay attention. Things could go really badly for you. And this morning we get to Hebrews chapter 2 and it is a bright yellow uh, warning label on our lives saying, pay attention. Things could go really badly for you if we don't pay attention. Because here's, here's what can happen if we show up to church, especially those of us who show up to church on spring forward, spring break and south by mornings. We need the warnings because likely many of us have been there, done that. Likely many of us have heard the, the word preached. We've sung the songs and, and this morning we get a warning to say, hey, pay attention. Wake up to the reality. Something's going on here. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, the first four verses is where we'll be today. If you've been tracking with us, we've been in Hebrews chapter 1 for the last three weeks. In all of Hebrews chapter 1, it's a proclamation and a celebration of the supremacy of Christ, right? Week after week after week, it's celebrating and proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. There's not one command. There's not one thing for us to start doing or one thing for us to stop doing in all of Hebrews chapter 1. Until we get to Hebrews chapter 2, and it's because the fact that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the ruler and the creator. Because of all those things, now here is something we ought to do. And in Hebrews chapter 2 is the application of chapter 1's proclamation. So three questions I have when we get to the text this morning. Three things. What are we to do? If chapter 1 is true, what are we to do? Why are we to do it, and how can we do it? What are we to do? Why are we to do it, and how can we do it? So let's jump in, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's just start in verse 1 and try to answer the question, what are we to do? Hebrews 2.1 says this. 
says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So did you notice Hebrews chapter 2 starts with the word therefore, which is connecting to all of what just happened. Because of all the things of chapter 1, therefore, here is what we ought to do. And what do we ought to do is this, pay much closer attention. That the first command in the book of Hebrews isn't do something for Jesus, it's just to pay attention. It's not labor for Jesus, it's listen to Jesus. It's not do something to be a better Christian, it's pay attention to Christ. That's the first command that we see. And, and honestly, as I read it this week, I was like, man, that kind of feels like a lame application to the soaring Christology of chapter 1. Chapter one is soaring in its supremacy of Jesus. One of the greatest places in all of the Bible that's showing how great Jesus is. And then the application is, I don't know, just pay attention to that. If you've got some time, fit it into your schedule. And I was reading that, I go, man, that feels like a lame application. And the very fact that I thought the application was pay attention showed me that I wasn't actually paying attention because it doesn't say pay attention. You notice what it actually says? It says, pay attention, no. Pay close attention, no. Pay much closer attention. This is actually this really strong phrase in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. It means be excessively aware. Have a furious obsession with this reality. Because this is who Jesus is, be excessively aware Pay attention, pay much closer attention. And so for those of us here this morning, maybe those of us who grew up in church, maybe those of us who have been around church a long time, there can be a temptation to say, man, I've been there, I've done that, I've heard that, I wanna go deeper, I wanna go to, the, to a new thing. Because the new thing, the shiny thing, that must be the true thing. I wanna press past the gospel into the deep truths. But friends, the gospel is the deep truths. Jesus is the deep truths. He's saying pay attention to the simple reality of the supremacy of Christ. It's a bright warning label saying don't let your familiarity with the gospel lead you to disregard the safety warnings. Pay attention. Because what can happen is we get bored with the gospel. It kind of becomes white noise. You ever use a white noise machine or on your phone at a hotel? You, know, you put on the white noise and what does it do? It, it helps you to sleep better. And, and sort of the gospel can sort of become a white noise machine. And all it does is it helps us sleep better but not live better. It sort of just puts us to sleep. It calms us but it doesn't motivate us. It doesn't move us. It doesn't push us into living. So one of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews is here. So the author of Hebrews over and over and over is giving warning after warning after warning. Uh, I was reading it and I was reminded of the last time I went on a commercial airline and the flight attendant, what is it, before every flight, what does the flight attendant do? Gives you the safety instructions, right? So the flight attendant will stand up and tell you how to buckle a seatbelt. And the flight attendant will tell you where the exit rows are and how to do the flotation device and how to do the oxygen. Uh, And you've 
all heard it before, so you can't be bothered with the message uh, because you're, you know, you're about to set a high score on Angry Birds or buy something impulsively from Sky Mall magazine. Like, there's some really important things in Sky Mall, and so you're not paying attention to the message that could save your life. And so we're, we're just sort of going through the motions, and that person's up there giving the warnings. Do you know who pays attention to the warnings the people that have a little apprehension about the fact that this, uh, this metal tube is about to fly 40,000 feet in the air at like 600 miles an hour, they're like, this doesn't seem right. Physics and uh, science should say something about this. The first time I took my son, who was a little guy on a plane, that dude was locked into the safety. He's like, so what do we do with the belt like are we sure about this and can I talk to the pilot I got some questions right Uh, he's locked into the safety warnings because he's a little apprehensive he's paying attention but for those of us who have flown we're like it'll be fine however what would cause us to actually pay attention well if we lost altitude rather quickly all of a sudden, we're like, what did that dude say about the, the buckle? Uh, what did he say about uh, the, the flotation devices? Now, all of a sudden, we're wanting to pay attention to the things that are going on. And, and the Bible comes along and says, hey, guys, pay attention. But it's so hard for us to actually do that because we are inundated with information. We live in an information age. I was reading an article this week that said, that your brain has to make 35,000 decisions every single day. So you know that whole like decision fatigue thing? It's a real thing. Your brain has trained itself to not see everything as an imminent threat or opportunity. It says, you know what? I'm gonna pay attention to the ultimate threats and the ultimate opportunities. Your brain has to do that in order to just not get overwhelmed. And so what's happened is that we've trained our brains to pay attention to the, the most serious warnings and the most prosperous rewards. Those are the things that capture our attention. The news has figured this out. That's why they call things breaking news because they're like, oh, this must be important. Brain, pay attention. The loudest voice, that's what we get attention to. The biggest threat. And so the Bible is saying, look, your brain is trying to consider what is the greatest threat and what is the greatest reward. Pay attention to those things. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Look, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received, watch, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there's a warning, there's retribution, and there's a promise, there's a reward. So it's saying, brain, pay attention to the things that really matter, to the threat of retribution and the promise of reward. That's what we're looking at. More on this in a minute, but I want to jump to the second question. So that's what we're to do. We're to pay attention. Why? Back to verse 1, Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. So why do we pay attention? We pay attention so that we don't drift. So what's happening is it's saying, so if you do nothing, if you just stay put, you will be moved because there is a current called culture. There's a current called your sinful nature that's going to move you away from 
from Jesus in the message of the gospel. You see that the nature of drifting is that it is inevitable. It's going to move you. And you're never drifting towards what you want to do. You're always drifting away from what you want to do. Look at this is this was fascinating. A D.A. Carson, who's a theologian, he said it like this. He said, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience in scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. In other words... A casual Christian is a drifting Christian. So if you want to move further and further away from Jesus, just do nothing. And the culture and your sinful nature will take that, that and move us. And so we have to pay attention. Because the nature of drift is that not only is it inevitable, but, inevitable, but it's nearly imperceivable. Like you don't even really know that it's happening. And you've ever been to the beach, right? You go to the beach, you got your blanket, you got your, uh, your cooler, and you got your beach chair and your umbrella, and you set up your spot. Like, this is our spot. Nobody get near our spot. And then you always got the guy that puts his blanket right next to yours, and like, like there's a mile of beach here. What are we doing, guys? Uh, so you go, and you set your stuff up, and you run into the waves, and you're playing. 10, 15 minutes in, you look up, and you're like, well, who moved all my stuff? My stuff is like way down there. And as a matter of fact, like who moved our hotel? So how is it that we've drifted without even being aware that we're drifting 10, 15 minutes in, now we've moved because there's a current that's moved us. We thought we were in the same space, but the current has pushed us. It's, it's this sort of drift that happens. And the author is saying, look, pay attention because there's drift happening. There's relational drift that goes on. So I was considering this this week. What does that drift look like? How do I know? What are the markers by which I can say, man, I feel like I'm drifting here. Now, I just came up with a few. And these, these are sort of markers of relational drift to say, okay, I feel like if, if these things are happening, at least I can be aware of the impercept, imperception of the fact that I am drifting. The first step is this, is that in relationships, the first wave of drift happens when I stop enjoying. Stop enjoying the relationship. It started strong. It was great. Things were just amazing. This person could do no wrong. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, like, relationships take work, and it's hard, and it feels more like work than it feels like fun. And so I stop enjoying that. That excitement that started the relationship doesn't feel like it's enough to keep it going. So after that wave comes the wave of we stop communicating. We stop talking about real things. We start asking questions like, hey, how are you doing? Answered by a very curt, I'm fine. And we all know that if you say I'm fine, you mean you're not fine. Uh, so let's just be honest about, about that. But when you say I'm fine, uh, it means I know I'm not fine and you know I'm not fine, but don't ask me about not being fine. And so we stop communicating, we stop asking, we stop listening, we stop paying attention. 
That's the second wave. The third wave is after that. We stop communicating. We stop connecting. And friendships, this is when the, the texts dry up. The invitations no longer come. In marriage, it is when the flames of intimacy turn into cold embers of past intimacy. I remember when we stop connecting, we stop enjoying, we stop communicating. And if all of those things happen, what the, the biggest wave of drift after those three things is we stop trusting. We start getting a little bit cynical. Instead of that person being for me, I think they're against me. I can't trust what they say. I can't trust their word. I, and so all of a sudden, relational drifts happens. I get a little calloused. I stop giving the benefit of the doubt. Start judging them a little bit more harshly. So we stop enjoying. We stop communicating. We stop connecting. We stop trusting. And if you take that framework and you p- apply it to our relationship with God, what we see in spiritual drift is when we stop enjoying God. We stop talking to God in prayer and listening to God through the word. We stop connecting with him through worship. Our worship becomes cold embers of a past passion that used to happen. And worship just becomes something that we go through the motions of. And then that last piece of drift is that we really stop trusting God. We get a little cynical. We get a little calloused. We start asking questions like, did God really say That should sound very familiar because that's the very question asked in Genesis chapter three when when, when Eve and Adam were in the garden. Did God really say that? Can you really trust God? Does he have your best interests? It's relational, it's spiritual drift. And we start trusting the voice of the serpent. We start trusting our own intuition to say, yeah, God's not for me. And we find ourselves drifting if we're not paying attention. So what do we do because of the supremacy of Christ? We pay attention. How do we do that? Or why do we do that? We do that so that we don't drift. The last question is this, how then? How can we do that? Well, we're able to keep from drifting by paying attention to the message and the messenger. To the message and the messenger. Look at Hebrews 2.2 again. It says this, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting two messages, right? He says there was this message declared by angels which proved to be reliable. What's he talking about there? The the message that was declared by angels is the law of Moses. It was given by Moses from God and it was declared by angels. And he says this, if that message was so strong that there would be consequences to breaking the law of Moses, how much more ought we pay attention to the message of Jesus? If there was consequences to breaking the law of Moses, there's also consequences to to neglecting the message of Christ. So you go back to the Old Testament, we recognize this, that in the law of Moses, there was both retribution and reward. What do our brains pay attention to? Retribution and reward. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says this, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. You see, if we break the Old Testament law, what is the consequence? Well, it tells us very clearly in Deuteronomy, you shall surely perish. And here's the warning, the warning of retribution, the warning that we're called to pay attention to. If that's true of the law of Moses, how are we to to deal with the message of Jesus? If we neglect this salvation, Essentially, it's saying this as a warning. There's no escape from the neglecting of the gospel. You see, if Jesus is so great and so beautiful and so complete and so final, if you reject this message, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, there is no hope. There is just retribution. And that just retribution is that you perish. It's a warning to pay attention to. It's a bright yellow warning saying, pay attention to this. And friends, might we not yawn through the warning and say, yeah, yeah, let's get to the good stuff. I I want us to feel the weight of that because that's the weight of Hebrews 2. That's the weight of what it means to disregard the words of Jesus who is superior to angels. But I also want to recognize this. That not only is there the warning of retribution, but there's the promise of reward. Because it says this, that we, those who disregarded the Old Testament law received a just retribution. So how shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? So there's a promise of reward to pay attention to also, right? That the message of Jesus is so great and so beautiful and so complete and so final that in him, if we receive this gospel, there's eternal hope. If we reject it, there's no hope. If we receive it, there's eternal hope. That's the warning here. It says that we receive a great salvation. That means in Christ, there's safety and reward and blessing and wholeness and escape from death itself. So by believing in Christ, we get to escape the retribution and receive the reward. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why he says pay attention to this. Because God's retribution has been swallowed up in Christ's redemption. See, what Christ has done is he lived the Old Testament law perfectly where none of us could. That's why we see in him the the benefits, all the blessings of the law that he followed perfectly came to him. And in him... We have the blessing of being an heir, a blessing of being the perfect son. That the, the righteousness of Christ was imputed into us. It was given to us, not because we've worked so hard, not because we show up on, uh, on Spring Forward Sunday, God, you owe me something. Only by the blood of Christ do we have something uh, of the reward that's been given. And so it changes the way that we perceive this. And we say, wow, we want to celebrate that. We want to rejoice in that. That's why First Peter chapter 1, look how he calls us to respond to this great gospel. 
Verse eight says, though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's saying rejoice in the reward of your redemption that Christ has given you. To pay attention to that. It's the big bold letters saying don't let your knowledge of the gospel lead you to not pay attention. So friends, this morning, I just want to encourage us to not get sleepy, to not get bored, to not get complacent, to not find ourselves drifting, to not neglect our salvation, to not neglect the love of God found in Christ, to not neglect the the gifts that the Spirit has given you, to not neglect considering the cross, considering the resurrection, considering the return of Christ that we pay attention to those things. How do we do that? How do we move from just sort of paying attention to paying much closer attention? Let me just give you a couple things and we'll be done this morning. Number one is that we can, we can pay attention by showing up to church. Y'all have done that. But we pay much closer attention by saying, you know what, there's one thing about being in a large room and not having anybody really know me. There's another thing about being in a small room and being vulnerable for them to actually know me and press in. To pay much closer attention means that the vulnerability of showing up here, it it takes another step forward to joining a group and saying, hey, could you hold me accountable? Could you pray for me? Could you rejoice when I rejoice? Could you weep when I weep? Paying much, much closer attention that the community of God would be able to be sort of the umbrella in the beach because you might not even know that you've drifted until you show up to small group and everybody's like, what is happening? Did you, you recognize you've drifted? And you're like, I didn't drift. You guys moved my stuff. They're like, we didn't move your stuff. You've been drifting. So community is a means by which we stable the drift. Second thing is this, we can pay attention by reading our Bibles. yes. We should do that. If you're not, then maybe that's step one. But, but we move from reading our Bibles to pay much closer attention is when we consider it, that we, when we memorize it, that we hide it in our hearts. And guess what? That we actually obey it. That we don't just read it, but we, we do it. We become hearers of the word and doers of the word. We say we pay much closer attention We might pay attention by believing that Jesus existed, and that's true. But we might pay much closer attention by trusting that this Jesus who existed is who he says that he is and has done what he said he will do. That he is the anchor for our souls that keeps us from drifting. Later in the book of Hebrews, chapter six, it says, hold fast to the hope that is set before us We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. Now, I love that phrase. We have a hope that serves as an anchor for our soul. Why? Because if we do nothing, we drift. And so we have a anchor. And our anchor is the bedrock foundation of who Jesus is, that he steadies us in our storms. He's the calmness in our chaos. He's the forgiver of our sin. He's the way and the truth and the life the creator, the sustainer, the upholder of all things. And so we can trust him. We can trust who he is as an anchor for our souls so that we don't drift. So friends, 
This Jesus, who's the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the upholder of all things, the the one who sits enthroned on high, he's worth paying attention to, paying much closer attention to. And so this morning, my hope for us is that we recognize Hebrews, the, the bright yellow warning, do not let your knowledge of the good news of the gospel and of Jesus lead you to disregard the safety warnings of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Let's pay attention. Let's see Jesus as he is. Let that be an anchor for our souls. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of the parts of your word, the, the encouragements and the warnings. The, the fear of retribution is a real thing. And so God, we don't wanna hold that lightly, but also the promise of reward. What good news that is for us. And so would you allow us To see, just as your word says, I've laid before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Oh, Lord, we want to choose you, recognizing that you choose us. You've called us to yourself. And if you're calling us this morning, Lord, our answer is yes. We, We want to follow you. We want the great salvation, the reward that you promise. And so, Lord, would you grab hold of us? Would you help us to hold fast? Would you help us to anchor deeply our souls in your word, in this community called the church, but ultimately in the hope that we have in you, Jesus? You're worth us paying attention to. So God, would you fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith? God, we're so distracted, so easily distracted by 35,000 decisions today. God, let one decision guide all of those decisions. And that decision is that we will fix our eyes on you, Jesus. So receive the praise of our voices now. Be honored in this time. We pray that in Christ's name.